0: following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Father, we come now to your word, we do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning in this place, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. you are indeed our rock and you are our Redeemer. So take your word and bring it down into the very bottom of our souls, our hearts, the very marrow of our bones that we might be changed by you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well as Russell said, I don't know if you caught it, but Mike and I have been longtime friends. We went to high school together, we were college roommates together, we went to seminary together, we were in each other's weddings And I, as Derek mentioned, this was not the day that Mike got ordained, he was ordained many years ago, but I was was intended to preach at his ordination service in Chattanooga, and uh, my flights got canceled in my route through Dallas, and by the time I could find another flight to get to Chattanooga, it would only get me there Sunday afternoon, after the service. And so I feel in many ways uh, bad about that, and I feel like I've owed you this sermon for many, many years. I think he had to call up somebody in, in my imagination in the middle of the night and say, will you please preach this service for me? Pretty much, I don't think it was even somebody that Mike really knew. So it's a joy for me to be here this morning, to see Mike being installed at Hope, and to be able to preach not only to him, of course, which I will do a little bit, but also to all of us. Because every pastor is called and set apart to a particular role and a particular responsibility, of course. But always, pastor remains a member of the body of Christ, just a simple follower of Jesus. And of course, sharing in the same pursuit of Christ, in the same practices of the Christian faith. Needing as much as any of us to have Jesus revealed to him in his life. As we all need the presence of Christ in our life, as we all need him revealed in our life, to see him at work and moving in our life. And that's what our text this morning is about in John 21. It's about Jesus Christ revealing himself to the disciples, revealing himself in our lives, how Jesus shows up, and how we need Jesus to show up in our lives. So please join me and turn to John chapter 21. We're going to read our passage here, verses one through 14, and answer this question, how does Christ reveal himself in our lives? And we will look at this movement in this passage from empty to full moving from empty to full. So please join me as we read from John 21. Now after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And well, they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered, No. And He said to them, "Well, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish behind them, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire, a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the fish was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You'll notice that in the very first verse of our chapter from John 21 here, that this is a story about Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. It's mentioned twice in the very first verse. Of course, it's described that this is the way that Jesus goes about revealing himself, the resurrected Jesus, to his disciples. It certainly describes what's happening historically in this moment on the shore of Galilee, but I believe here that Jesus is also giving us insight into how he reveals himself and shows up in our own lives. This is, of course, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the details of this particular story might sound familiar to you because this is actually how the disciples first encountered Jesus and first became disciples in Luke chapter 5. You'll remember the disciples there, especially Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, they had a very similar experience to this in the Lake of Galilee in John 21. In Luke 5, they also fished all night. In Luke 5, they also had no kit, no catch, no fish, nothing to show for it. And in Luke 5, Jesus shows up and says to them what they must do in order to have nets that become full. In Luke, the boats are sinking because they're so full of fish. Here in John, the catch is so large that they can't even haul it in. So here, right as the resurrected Jesus is about to reveal himself to his disciples, he brings them back to the very beginning where he had met them The very first time in another ship with another hall of empty to full, the place where it all started. And what does that beginning look like? In Luke and in John here, 21, it's at night, it's dark and empty. Notice at the end of verse 3 here, but that night they caught nothing, their nets were empty. When Mike and I were in college at Kansas State, we were both involved in Campus Crusade, or Crew, as it's called now. One year we were trying to start conversations among other students about Jesus on the campus. And so someone had the idea for this campaign, we would all buy and wear hoodies, black hoodies, with white lettering on them. And the white lettering said the words empty with a big question mark at the end, and that was it. Now you have to understand, this was the fall in Kansas in the early 2000s. So pretty much everyone was wearing a sweatshirt and all of them had ironic words on them. And not a lot came from this opportunity to try and talk to people about Jesus. I think I remember there was one stoner who looked at my shirt and was like, right on, man, me too. So I'm not sure how effective this campaign was for evangelism, but the statement that we were trying, or the reality behind that statement, this is often where Jesus meets us in our lives where he reveals himself in our lives, when our lives come up empty. Is that you this morning? Has it been you this last year? The things that you've been counting on to use to satisfy you are no longer giving you life. They're letting you down. Your job, your reputation perhaps, your marriage or your health. What you thought your life was going to look like has no longer looked that way. What once felt so thrilling has evaporated and left you, like the disciples, groping around in the dark with an empty net. So here's where Jesus begins with his disciples. And here's where he begins again with them to reveal himself afresh in their lives. Why does Jesus go back to the very beginning doing almost the exact same thing that he did when he first brought them into his life and making them his disciples. Because Jesus hasn't changed. From the very beginning, Jesus is still the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He has never changed. But the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is, well, that's drastically changed for them. You see, the disciples first loved Jesus as a brilliant moral teacher, as their rabbi, as someone full of the Spirit, as a miracle worker. On a few rare occasions in the Gospels, they even see him as the Son of God and the Messiah. But certainly their most Well, certainly the thing that they thought most of all that he would be was a political savior. You see, in John 11, when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, they assumed he was riding into Jerusalem to be crowned king, to kick Rome out, to free Israel. But when they get to Jerusalem, instead, Jesus is meekly crucified and then surprisingly resurrected from the dead. You see, their plans of who Jesus was going to be and who they thought he was, they become dramatically shifted. You see, when your life goes empty and you are in the dark, Jesus hasn't changed. But you are coming to see that perhaps you didn't fully understand him or trust him or know him as he really is. He is moving himself out of the box that we sometimes put Jesus into. The box where Jesus is a part of our lives, instead of the very center of our lives. The box where Jesus makes us simply feel good or solves our problems or guides us to have a better life. Jesus totally upended the disciples' plans and their perspective of what he intends to do in their life, and now he begins again with them, with this new revelation of who he is and the emptiness of their lives. Because emptiness, as Jesus says elsewhere, is a place of blessedness. That's how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they are empty, in other words. Blessed are those whose spirits ache, who know they are needy. Because then your ears and your eyes are open to the kingdom of God, and you are ready to hear the words of life. Notice here, It is only after the disciples in John 21 had fished all night and come up empty does Jesus begin to appear at dawn and begin to speak to them. When they are now ready to hear and listen, just at dawn, Jesus begins to speak into the emptiness and he asks this penetrating question. Children, lads essentially, boys, do you have any fish? Are your labors working? Is what you are doing bringing life? And there's no answer but the truth. No, they say, it isn't, and we are empty. Then he gives them a command. Notice, not a suggestion here, but a command. Cast your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. In other words, submit to my words, and it will produce life for you. Now, we hear that. It's a familiar passage, perhaps. But can you imagine in the moment how annoyed the disciples must have felt at this? Because they do not yet know that this is Jesus. They've been fishing for hours and hours and caught nothing. And somebody walks up on the shore and says, hey guys, have you tried it on the right side? Like, really? You think they didn't try on the right side of the boat all night long? Of course they did. But this is often how Jesus' words come to us. They seem counterintuitive. Forgive. He says, loosen your grip on your money and your plans. Follow my sexual ethic. Be gentle with your words and with your actions. Hold on to your life and you will lose it. Lose your life and you will find it. This doesn't feel like the way that's going to lead to life, Jesus, we might feel and think or even say. Because it feels good to harbor my bitterness. It seems a little reckless to be as generous as you want me to be, Jesus. Don't you know I'll feel repressed and maybe even excluded if I follow what you say about sex? Don't you know gentleness in this world, in 2023, it will just get you run over. You never win. But notice what happens when the disciples do follow Jesus' words. What happens? Yes, their nets are full. Yes, Jesus makes good on his promise. But more importantly, in verse 7, that's when they begin to know that it is Jesus on the shore. Their eyes are opened, and he begins to be revealed in their life. Jesus is revealed to them as they follow him. In verse 4, when Jesus begins to speak, they do not know who it is. But after they begin to follow his words, after they do what he says and put the nets in, then they begin to see. As John, the disciple, the one who Jesus loves, says here, it is the Lord. You see, some things you cannot see until you begin to do it. That is true with the Lord. But maybe it's better to make the point from the reverse because the reverse is also true. A couple of years ago, Derek and I sat down with a mutual friend of ours who who had blown up his marriage and he was having an affair with a coworker. And as he spoke, he said, well, you know, I'm having a really hard time with my faith. I can't really see Jesus anymore, he said to us as if that was an explanation for why he was doing what he was doing. But we said to him, No, actually those two things are far more connected than you want to believe. Because I cannot tell you, we said to him, how often people who are having affairs and running away from the Lord suddenly find themselves struggling with their faith and suddenly unable to see the Lord in their life. You cannot see Jesus, we said to him, because you're no longer listening to him. You're no longer submitting to his words. No wonder you do not know him anymore. This is perhaps this step of moving from empty to full that is the hardest for us, as Jesus reveals himself in our lives, because of course it is a step of faith, and the underlying question is, if I do what sounds counterintuitive to me, can I trust you, Lord? Will your words really lead to life for me? Because I hear a lot of words, and a lot of words are being put in my ears all the time, in songs, and in television, and on podcasts, and among my friends. Are your words really better than all those words? What do we see when the disciples get to shore? Because Jesus wants to show him that he is worthy of your trust. Verse nine here, When all the disciples get to shore, what do they find? Jesus standing by a charcoal fire. Well, why is that significant to us? You might not know, but this is part of John's poetic writing in his gospel, because this word here in Greek for charcoal fire, it only shows up two times in the entire New Testament, only two times. The first time is when Peter rejects Jesus and betrays Jesus three times. And Peter here, of course, is desperate to be reconciled with Jesus. That's the reason why he jumps out of the ship and swims to shore before everybody else because he knows what he has done. He knows he's been separated by Jesus because he betrayed Jesus three times and he wants to be reunited to Jesus. And what does Peter find when he gets to shore to be re- reconciled with this Jesus? He finds Jesus standing by the very symbol of Peter's failure and Peter's sin. But notice what Jesus is doing with his charcoal fire. He's not saying, Peter, you are a failure. Peter, you betrayed me. Get back on the boat and go to the other side of the shore. No, Jesus at this charcoal fire is repurposing it to a place that was rejection, betrayal, and failure to become a place of forgiveness and grace and restoration. See, Peter rejected Jesus at this charcoal fire, but Jesus feeds Peter at this charcoal fire. Later in the same chapter, Jesus is going to restore Peter by asking Peter three times if he loved him, allowing Peter to rewrite that painful story of his life with those words of betrayal, to rewrite it with the words of love. So why can we trust Christ enough to submit to his word and follow him? Because this is how he deals with sinners and how he deals with failures. He does not abandon them, He does not give up on them. He pursues them. In Peter's case, in the disciples' case, and in yours. He pursues through his death upon the cross, and through his resurrection into new life. And he asks for all of us, not some of us, not half-hearted measures of response to him, but all of us, because he has already given all of himself for us. See, Christ became empty upon the cross, forsaken by the Father, that he might make us full. He was broken, that we might be healed. He was rejected and betrayed, that we might be restored and accepted. And Christ has not stopped pursuing you. No matter your failure, no matter how empty you feel this morning, no matter if you are restarting, your life again. He is longing to meet you around the charcoal fires of your life and feed you with the sacrifice of his life, of his presence, of his grace and forgiveness. So finally, when do all the disciples, not just John and Peter, but all of the disciples finally understand that it is the Lord? When he is finally fully revealed to all of them, it's when he begins to feed them around this charcoal fire with the the produce, the fish that he has produced in their life. He says, give me the fish that I produced in your life. And then he feeds them with that. Notice when breakfast starts here in verse 12, it says that none of them dared ask who was feeding them. Why? Because then they knew. They knew it was the resurrected Jesus. And of course, he was there the whole time. But only after he had met them in their emptiness And only after he had proven himself to them as they followed his word and submitted to it, and only after he had met them around the charcoal fire of their failure and sin, then, then he feeds them. Then he is fully revealed and fully known. Notice verse 13 here. What does he feed them? Bread and fish. Well, that should make us think of something else, shouldn't it? Because what did Jesus feed the 5,000 with? bread and fish. And it's a reminder to us that he is fully sufficient to meet our needs and the emptiness of our hearts and souls. But it's also nearly impossible to miss the reference to communion here on this morning in this meal on the beach. Because right after he feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6, what does Jesus spend the next rest of the chapter talking about? Communion. Listen to the words of Jesus from John 6. After feeding the 5,000, he says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And we are always reminded of that fundamental reality as we come and eat from this table. In a moment, we'll share communion together. Mike will lead us to the table. Make no mistake, it is Jesus this morning who will say to you, come and eat breakfast. And Christ will feed you this morning through bread and through wine, for he is the source of all life. And he is the only thing that can make your empty soul full. He is the one you were made for. And his flesh was broken on the cross that we might find in him life eternal. So Mike, my friend, this is your calling as a pastor at Hope. Not only to look for Jesus to be revealed in your own life, but when the people of Hope and the people in New Braunfels feel that their life has left them dissatisfied and empty, confused and in the dark, when they're wondering where God is and if Jesus is going to show up in the night, you are to meet them there. Like these other disciples in verse 3 who say, We will go with you, Peter. You can say, I will go with you. You are to go to them in the dark and await the dawn, to keep your eyes on the horizon for when Jesus begins to walk on the shore, and then you must point him out to them. Encourage others to listen, to submit to the voice of Jesus in their lives. Be like the apostle John in the boat and help the people of this church and this community to know that the things that are going on in their life, it is the Lord. He is the one doing it. And Jesus you must say, is drawing you to himself. And his words are the words of life. Mike, you are to give of your many gifts and talents to the people of hope. You know, Christ has already filled your net with so many good things and so many good gifts. So bring that catch and share your life with the people of this place. And let this place be made more by what you give here. And you are, of course, along with Derek, to constantly feed this place upon Jesus, upon his word, and through the sacraments. Do not feed them on yourself, for that's a fool's errand. Feed them on the resurrected Christ, because he is the only one who has life in himself. And bring others here on Sunday to have breakfast with Jesus. Invite them to be fed by Christ to be made whole, to be made full, and satisfied, and at peace. You know, when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Minnesota on a farm. And the tradition that we had whenever we visited my grandparents was every single morning to have breakfast in their little kitchen, and and the breakfast was always the same. It was bacon, fried to perfection. It was a cup of steaming coffee, which I was not allowed to drink as a kid but everyone else was. And it was eggs fried sunny side up in the bacon grease. And there was toast with butter and jam that was made from the fresh fruit from their garden. It was delicious. But my grandfather would shout to us from downstairs while he was cooking and we were still sleeping. He would say, hey, come and have breakfast. And I knew that I was wanted and that I would be fed and that we would sit around that table in the morning and eat and talk and laugh. And every time now I visit my parents, my own kids who have now become the grandkids, and my father, who is now the grandfather, does the exact same thing. And my kids know that they belong, that they are accepted and wanted around the table. This is what Christ does for us every Sunday, what Mike you were called to do here at Hope, to say, "Come and have breakfast." Come feast on Jesus Christ. You are wanted. You belong to him. So come be fed by him. And no longer be empty. Amen. Father, we do ask that we would be fed in faith by your word and even through the meal that we are about to share together with you and with your people. Father, send your spirit upon us that we might in the midst of the emptiness of our lives have our eyes fixed upon you to follow you where you call us, to obey you, to find you meeting us in our fears and frustrations and pain with your grace and your forgiveness. We might rejoice that in you there is fullness of life, an abundant life, and life evermore. So we do ask that you would make us full this very morning. In Christ's name, amen.